This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. G'day, welcome on board the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1249. Thanks to the room with the viewers and Dave there for pinch hitting at the last minute there as our shuttlecraft entered the outer limits of the twilight zone and made a rough landing into the studio. But here we are, smoking in on Zero G uh, Rob Jan flying hand solo today. Megan McHugh is absent. I uh, hope she's feeling a bit better by next week's show, our big Radiothon episode next week. If I've got the dates right, yes, I have. Ooh, be afraid. Well, actually, no, don't be afraid. Just have a lot of fun because it's Radiothon and you will enjoy it. You will enjoy it. <laughs> now, uh, we've got a lot to get through today. Uh, the... Melbourne International Film Festival is in full swing at the moment. And we've got a few more things that we've had a look at to chat with you about today. And also Preacher Season 4 has just dropped on Netflix. Uh, sorry, almost did the wrong one. Stan. And uh, this is the season that's been filmed in the Docklands here in Melbourne. It's the misadventures of Jesse Custer, played by Dominic Cooper, and his lethally dangerous girlfriend Tulip, and sometimes sidekick the vampire Cassidy. Uh, Custer is a, a, low, a lay preacher, he's also a low one as well, and a con man who's been possessed by a powerful demonic entity, giving him the ability to command people's obedience through the power of his voice. Well, this is the fourth season, so probably not the place to start in on, but, you know, because it's streaming, then all the other seasons are there as well, so you can get in there and binge if you've got a particularly strong stomach because as we've stus- discussed before on Zero G, Preacher is quite full on. It's based on a very graphic novel. Now, Jesse is still battling the Grail Society, a theocratic organisation of racist fanatics who are loyal to their leader, Herr Starr, who is actually, I think, the newly-fledged Pope in this season. Uh, you may recall that the Pope exploded, <laughs> quite literally, in a previous season, the old one, that is. And this one picks up where the last one left off. Uh, Cassidy is now a prisoner in the Grail headquarters, which happens to be in Masada in Israel. <laughs> it's it's a full-on, full-service institution there with lecture theatres and uh, hangars and um, all sorts of things. They have courses in torturing the poor souls who come their way, you know. But it's actually all filmed in Australia, so they're, they're swapping out um, to the Middle East for Oz. Um, and, of course... Since we're broadcasting from Oz, it is immediately apparent every time they do that in the uh, in the show. So you know they'll be pelting down a, a back road um, between a couple of paddocks with some very typical Aussie barbed wire fences and gum trees in the background, and you can tell from the light it's here basically. <laughs> anyway, their Masada set looks great. It's um, quite a piece of work there. It must have provided lots of. Uh, 
lots of employment for lots of Aussie techies and so on, and that's all to the good. <laughs> uh, this season, because they've only dropped a couple of episodes so far, they're coming out each Monday. Uh, I think we're up to the third one tonight. Um, that's been pretty good so far. A lot of uh, the usual sort of maniacal mayhem that you'd expect of the Preacher show, and Dominic Cooper is back in full form with his powers at full strength once again. Um, as usual, there's <laughs> fractious discourse and problems between our three anti-heroes, and uh, they're also trying to deal with the Grail headquarters and its recent change in power structure. And I don't know, it's just a lot of fun watching this show, knowing now particularly that it's set here. Uh, and it actually will be <laughs> placed in Australia later within the um, the meta story of the show. So, you know, they're, they're actually just playing, pulling this sort of fast one on us all the way through. And that's good. That's good. Um, the her, her hair star is uh, getting whittled away, apart from that nasty um, uh, wound on his uh, bald head that um, was inflicted in the previous seasons. Um, now he's just had his ear shot off as well. So he's a man of many pieces at the moment. I don't know. Look, this is very sick fun, and it's for sick people. Um, so I'm guessing I'm kind of recommending it from zero-G perspective. It is Preacher. I think I've got Dave Porter's um, uh, main title theme here from it. So let's hear that Preacher. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. Yeah, Mr. Porter there with the main title theme from Preacher, which has dropped season four on Stan at this very moment. As I was saying before, they're doing them individual episodes, so not a whole season to binge watch all at once. But, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? You can... You can pace yourself. Or is there is moderation for turtles? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe ninja turtles at least. Hard to say with Preacher if, um, if you're going to be satisfied by the events, the stunning events of this season, but I, I know you will at least be thoroughly disgusted. Ah, <laughs> oh, Zero G, we're a strange show, but that's all right. That's the way it is. All right, now uh, the Melbourne International Film Festival is rollicking on into its second week. We have been picking the genre giblets out of it as usual. Lots of good stuff there this year. Two zombie movies, uh, Takeshi Mickey Gangster Riot, a full to the burst of oddities and weirdness night shift program which we've inter uh, reviewed quite a few of the things in that, uh, some cutting-edge new animated films, a, a Jeff Goldblum festival, and some epic, epic documentaries, including Memory, The Origin of Alien, which we talked about last week and had an interview with the director and writer. And so this week... Um, going to be looking at uh, some assorted bits and pieces in the documentary field. The first one was Our Time Machine, which still has one screening to go. Uh, it's directed by S. Leo Chiang and Yang Sun. Uh, Chiang was also with, uh, along with a Bo Lee, one of the writers for Our Time Machine, and it's um, Yang Sun's first directorial credit. 
Now, Chung's directed other documentaries as well as being a, uh, a cinematographer on several video shorts about genre subjects, ranging from residents... Resident Evil's transition from game to screen through the work of special effects makeup artist Rick Baker to Jason Voorhees' many lives in his various screen outings. He's also directed a movie called Mr. Cow Goes to Washington, um, which is a fascinating character study of a New Orleans congressman. And so this um, sort of... Um, Genre, so social consciousness informs this uh, movie, this current documentary, Our Time Machine. So, what it is is uh, as a, a Chinese artist, uh, Ma Lung, um, who has found out that his father, uh, Marquis, is uh, suffering from Alzheimer's disease and losing his memory at a, a great Rate. Now, his father was uh, quite a well-known Peking opera director, um, doing 40 or so shows in his uh, time as a director. And he can remember that, his father can remember that, and some other incidents as well, but a lot of the short-term memory sort of doesn't, doesn't take with him. So uh, Malion has um, decided to create a a sort of semi-autobiographical stage play. Now, this artist thing, uh, life-size mechanical puppets, either deployed, um, as you may have seen in uh, other performances, um, directly behind uh, handlers who are dressed in informally in kind of steampunk costumes. Um, so they sort of fade into the background while the actual almost life-size mannequins are manipulated in front of them. Um, they also use... Um, string marionettes as well up against um, uh, a shade cloth uh, sort of backdrop so they they shine the light against them and their shadows they're shadow shadow puppets as well so there's a sort of a mixture of um, techniques there so in this play it's um about uh, a father and son they're they're working out their mortality Um, they're trying to retain memories so there's actually a time machine in this that they're built out of a of a wheelchair and large um, kind of steampunk um, uh, clock motifs as well. So this is a very conceptual piece and the documentary is about that piece being made and how the son and the father in real life interact in relation to this very charming documentary subject. So... We also see um, the the, uh, the mother in there as well, uh, and she is actually. I, I think she gets a bit shortchanged in this because she's the person who's actually running primary caregiver responsibilities, and I would have liked to have heard more from her in the in the documentary. Nevertheless, they are focusing upon the father son relationship, and it is incredibly touching actually the way it, that it evolves through the. Um, understanding of the play and his father's hazy recollections of his own theatrical past which relate to his son's new artistic practice Um, I was in tears at the end of this when the the revelations started coming fast and furious basically um, when they they stage the actual production and we see uh, how the son uh, eventually 
comes to terms with um, his father's loss of memory through the practice of his art and also through some other things that happen along the way. And I won't spoil it for you for there. So I think this is a really excellent documentary. It's called Our Time Machine and it's at screening at the MIF this year. Uh, it's got one more session, I believe, to, uh, to show. Uh, often, sometimes we get um, overtaken by... Uh, just the sheer barrelling passage of time, and we don't have a time machine. Um, our TARDIS is on the blink at the moment, but then it is always on the blink. It's that blue light at the top that keeps doing that. And sometimes the, we run out of screenings uh, once we've reviewed the, the film, but you do realise that a lot of these will show up eventually um, quite often on SBS, either on World Movies or uh, or on, on the uh, the regular channel. And also, of course, some of these documentaries uh, have local distributors, uh, particularly Mad Men. They, they seem to uh, uh, snare a lot of these ones as well, and they'll be available to get on DVD too, as well as probably some kind of streaming service at some stage. So I, I, I just sail on uh, throughout there that uh, motif and try and uh, do my best because, you know, time is the fire in which we all burn. Now, I thought um, I might go for another track and in this case it was very likely to be the David Bowie track for the week. And it is indeed uh, that track (laughs) and it's Young Americans and I'll tell you why I'm playing this after I've played it. And it's from this particular instance of this track is from Bowie the Singles Collection, Volume 1. I never did actually find Volume 2. I think that was um, aspirational. Aspirational on my part because I didn't get off my arse and find the Volume 2. But there you go. Hi, my name is Greg McLean, director of Wolf Creek and Rogue. You are listening to Zero G on 3RRR. Yeah, here we are. We've been with the young Americans there just before the little reminder of Radiothon coming up there. Rob Jan here with Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio. Now, why did we play Young Americans? Because it's our weekly David Bowie track, but it's also because it keys into the resignation of Richard Milhouse Nixon president of the united states who served for two terms back in the uh, 1970s i think aging into the 60s as well now it mentions of course uh, the whole thing about um, the cynical nature of the the whole nixon administration and the corruption at its heart and that brings us to the documentary Watergate. Now this one's run out of screenings at the International Film Festival but I mention it to you because by golly I watched all four hours of it and somebody has to pay. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's a fine documentary actually. It's um, They've rendered down basically 3,400 hours of archival footage, documents, audio tapes and no doubt heartfelt missives written on the back of onion skin parchment. It is directed by Charles Ferguson, who's also the writer. He's um, 
US American director of documentaries, did uh, No End in Sight, which was um, an analysis of the Bush administration's conduct of the war in Iraq. Also um, telling, look at the financial meltdown in 2008 called Inside Job. He also has time to choose a documentary about climate change challenges and solutions and also Invisible Hands, which was about child labour and trafficking within the supply chains of global corporations' products. And you would expect that he would bring a pretty expert hand and a steady one to this documentary about Watergate. And indeed he has. Now, the um, blend and the mix in this <coughs> involves a bunch of um, reenactment folded into interviews and the archival footage as well as some archival audio too. So he's actually got um, an actor to play Nixon for part of this and I don't think the actor looks a great deal like Nixon but at the same time he does actually capture some of the mannerisms and the and the bullish arrogance as well as paranoia of the man. Douglas Hodge plays Nixon in this documentary. So there's a bit of recreation there, but it, mostly it's all within um, the Oval Office of the, of the White House. And so there weren't cameras recording parts of these conversations, and just the, um, the almost inevitable <laughs> stuff-up that was actually taping the conversations uh, which, of course, backfired big time upon Nixon later on. So it's not really a sympathetic port, um, portrayal of the president. How could it be? He's, he's clearly crooked. He orders, essentially, the break-in at the Watergate Hotel of the Democratic headquarters. And the reasons for it are really totally paranoid. He was actually ahead of the um, the polls at this stage, uh, wanted to nail it down, didn't trust the media uh, and was um, aiming to be re-elected for his second term. The Vietnam War was rolling on its horrific way. Uh, peace protesting students were causing considerable problems. I think, uh, when was the Kent State University shootings? Was this before the end of Nixon's first term? Um, I don't know for sure, um, off the top of my head, can't quite remember, but, you know, Martin Luther King had been assassinated, uh, Senator Robert Kennedy had been assassinated as well. The the opposition to Nixon's um, running of the war in Indochina was triggering his dark side all throughout this. Now, this is a four-hour documentary, and a lot of these moments are built into the first two hours. I think it's broken up. Uh, into hour-long pieces or or, or maybe a little bit longer than that uh, for its general release um, on television when they do it that way. So, you know, it's kind of a Ken's burn feeling to this sort of uh, documentary, but because these are some straight reenactments in there, uh, maybe not so much. Um, He really is a piece of work. This break-in at the Watergate thing uh, almost almost, um, inevitably does go wrong. Uh, they catch the five guys who were um, in, involved in, in the physical break-in. Um, you, know, you know part of this story, if you know anything about history, which is why I'm having a look at this under Zero-G sort of historical uh, brief. 
you will know that um, the reporters Woodward and Bernstein got involved in the investigation uh, on a um, quite substantial level. Uh, as Nixon's hit list expanded, he's trying to cover up the break-in, trying to um, investigate, counter-investigate people using the, the full force of the US government to to get the uh, Internal Revenue Service to investigate people's tax returns and so on. So no contrition about actually having commissioned this, this um, illegal break-in, uh, just increasing frustration as it grows bigger and bigger. The cover-up grows bigger and he can't control it anymore. Um, so there's really no remorse shown by him at any stage about all of this. Uh, the ins and outs of this, how it intersects with the Pentagon Papers trial, the last-ditch effort where he starts to fire everyone, uh, the Senate hearings, the the question, what did the president know and when did he know it? Uh, Nixon get going more and more off the rails. And all of this ties in with the uh, other investigation of Vice President Spiro Agnew for receiving bribes. <laughs> so there's these other things that are that are distracting Nixon from the business of government right during the critical um, Middle Eastern War, the Yom Kippur War and the airlift to resupply Israel uh, and any number of other things that um, really required the full attention of the President of the United States then. And, of course, this documentary is inevitably pitched with an eye towards the present time and another president as they say those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it uh, there is some some differences between the two presidents I think Nixon was probably a much more adept conspirator who knows how what levels the current president's going to reach, but, you know. So I, I do recommend this. If you're a, a history wonk and a political history nut, like I can be sometimes, I can be a real wing nut, which is to say um, <laughs> a fan of the West Wing television program. That's what they call uh, those fans, wing nuts. And so I found this all quite fascinating you do need to take several bites out of it rather than watching it all at once because those four hours are quite solid and it's a bit of a slog. Still, I thought this was an incredibly fascinating documentary, Watergate, very timely, director and writer Charles Ferguson. And, uh, yeah, who knows if some kind of history will repeat itself. Or would these major crimes be even considered such a big deal in the 21st century wouldn't they the in this case it's the the media that's partly leading the charge and um, quite adeptly so would they just not be slapped aside as fake news now uh, something to think about now I, that's why i played the young americans track because it does have its very 1975 nixonian echoes an actual excellent documentary at the myth but run out of screenings i'm afraid so you'll have to catch up with it in the aftermarket, as they say, on telly or streaming or as a DVD at some stage. All right, now one of the um, event focuses at the MIF this year was a discussion with Nick Cave and I think um, Warren Ellis, 
about uh, his musical contribution to a lot of soundtracks over the years. And I thought that I might play you a track here from The Road, which is that uh, post-apocalyptic Cormac McCarthy adaptation that was done at one stage. And I think I'll um, let this one play out. The Road, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, which I, I really like the film. Um, apart from the ending, but the ending is what it is and it um, is pretty much straight down the line from uh, the origin, original novel and I just felt it didn't quite end the way, the bleak way that the, um, the actual story set up. But anyway, here's the track. This is Neil Gaiman in the dangerous alphabet zero, G comes last, Z waits alone and it's not for a thing. Nick Cave and Warren Ellis's The Road from the soundtrack album of that post-apocalyptic film. Rob Jan here at the helm of Zero G and we are looking at one more documentary from the Melbourne International Film Festival which again does have an, an additional screening still available. It's One Child Nation. It's directed by Nan Fu Wang and Jialing Zhang who, in the case of uh, Nan Fu, has done a couple of um, social justice documentaries before, um, Hooligan Sparrow, where an activist is seeking justice for sexual abuse victims, and Out of Many, One, which is a very timely doco about immigration issues in the United States of America. And following up from that is I Am Another You, which is Wang's documentary about an intentionally homeless person abroad in the United States. Now, she's actually a first-time mother and filmmaker, is Nan Fu, and this is the story of um, China's one-child policy running from the year 1979 and recently ending after, what, 35 years, something like that, in uh, 2015. Now, This is a pretty full-on documentary, very confronting and quite challenging in many ways. So be warned and encouraged because this goes places that I haven't seen a documentary going about this subject before. Um, uh, It opens with uh, footage that contrasts a fetus with parades and rallies bayonets and tanks, banners and bombers and babies. This is a one-child-per-family policy, but there are nuances to it, which this documentary does bring out. Or perhaps I should say, and nuances. Uh, Everything in here about um, the fines that were levied upon people who did not comply, uh, the economic incentives that were given to people who did. There's a lot of the propaganda and the mechanisms of that shown here as well as there's a guy who does some who did uh, operas as well family planning operas so everything from the posters to matchboxes to patriotic songs and so on there are reminders everywhere now uh, Nan Fu becomes a mother in um, a time that's uh, a little bit further on from this so her own experiences are mixed in. She was born herself in 1985, so right in the uh, in the middle of it. 
Um, there are interviews with people like a doctor who performed between 50,000 and 60,000 sterilisations and enforced abortions. Um, she's been shattered by this experience herself and she now exclusively helps women who are infertile. They send her flags thanking her when they have a child. She's got entire walls and rooms covered in those flags. It's her pennant, penance, as it were. There's another official who's interviewed who starred in propaganda videos, and she's quite cool with it all. In fact, that actually does show through um, in the interviews of some other people. One says quite tellingly that she thinks that there would have been cannibalism in China now if they hadn't done the one-child policy. Um, it's actually really difficult and for me to comment about all of this because I don't have any children and I'm actually uh, committed to not having children. Um, so I can't quite really emotionally um, emphasize or uh, <laughs> grapple with the... Um, um, the anguish that must have occurred to people who really wanted to have children. Overlaying that is a quite a dystopic um, propaganda and enforcement setup. Um, I was hearing the other day that, um, uh, as in a black mirrorish mode, with um, techno dystopian efficiency, that um, China had been implementing a social credit system, which kind of um, allowed likes and dislikes to influence the person's actual life in the real world. Well, they've been there with um, dystopias before. Um, there's some confronting footage where an artist looking through trash heaps um, for found objects to make his practice with finds discarded fetuses in medical waste bags. It's chilling stuff. Um, this documentary, I, I think, is is very worth a look, if only to understand where China comes from at present, uh, which has actually got a, a two-child policy. One of the nuances was that if you were um, in the old system, if you were living in a rural area, you could have two children, but they had to be, had to be separated by five years apart. There's a lot of social implications to this policy as well as practical ones too and this documentary does unravel many of them. It's called One Child Nation. It's by Nanfu Wang and Chieling Zhang and it's on at the Melbourne International Film Festival at the moment. One take on this entire massive social engineering that um, was undertaken in China over 35 years or so. All right, well, that's about it for Zero-G. Now, why am I calling time on Zero-G quite early? Because it's not musically the end of the show today, but a great deal of the last 10 minutes is going to be taken up by a track. So, US-American band Tool is preparing to drop their first studio album in 13 years since their 10,000 Days album. It's their fifth album now. Quite a bit of anticipation is surrounding this epic moment. Uh, and it's a very cult group, actually, Tool. Very um, eclectic in its, uh, in its ways. Not entirely heavy metal, a bit more prog rock nowadays. And on their new album, Fear Inoculum, all the tracks are over 10 minutes long, which makes it rather difficult to play on commercial radio. 
with their playlists and so on. But here we are on Zero G on Triple R, and I find that uh, Tool is actually very genre-ish, looking at their their album titles at least, and their experimental approach to music in general as well as marketing too. <laughs> uh, the title track, uh, Fear Inoculum, is now available. What is it all about? Well, you know, they're talking about issues of um, ageing and, uh, and coming to terms with, um, with where they are now and many more things which can't really be properly grokked until you've um, heard the whole album, which you won't do until August the 30th. So the title track is here at the moment. Um, reportedly also the uh, they've got a very techno-playful CD album which um, has a trifold limited edition case which features a built-in USB chargeable 4-inch screen with a 2-watt speaker and this plays exclusive video footage. You can also download an MP3 code from that album and uh, a 36-page booklet which is all coming out on the 30th. The album consists of seven main tracks of music and it's got a runtime of 80 minutes. So I think there's also a, a recurring theme of the number seven in this album too. But, you know, I can't really speak to that until we get to it. As you know, I've talked briefly about Tool before because it does have a lot of science fictional tie-ins. The cover for this album is by Alex Gray, a so-called visionary artist who's uh, referenced in um, Spider Robinson's... Uh, story fleshing out of Robert Heinlein's concepts in the book Variable Star and he mentions um, Alex Gray's work there. Uh, Adi Granoff, of course um, best known for his uh, paintings for Marvel Comics, his designs and illustrations and also for the Marvel Cinematic Universe also has done work for Tool over time and I know that their uh, <laughs> their leading lights um, uh, Maynard uh, is also very much a Tool, uh, an Iron Man fan as well. And some of his costumes at some of his concerts have been pretty close in concept, I feel, having looked at um, one in particular the other day. So, uh, and of course, um, uh, Adi Granoff uh, did a, an album cover for um, the 21st anniversary re-release of the Tool debut album, um, Opiate. So, you know, to me, it's, a, it's all a piece there. But anyway, it's very... Um, technologically interesting and the sort of thing that I felt I'd like to play going out with on Zero G for today. And it is a fairly long track, but, uh, you know, you can handle that. We'll give you a bit of a station ID before we go to that and a bit of a promo to some other shows on Zero G. Now, uh, sorry, on Triple R. Okay, Radiothon next week. Be here and we'll get into it next week. And Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. And I'd like to thank Tiki and Charlie from the Melbourne International Film Festival for making my way a little bit easier and trying to uh, surmount some considerable technical difficulties too, I may add. And also Elizabeth McCarthy, our talks producer, for sorting out that interview last week and for helping today in particular with some trying circumstances, our own Beck Hornsby and Simon Winkler and also thanks to Simon Imberger who's been informing me at great length about the ins and outs of the Tool cult. That's it for Zero G for today. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au